This morning, I want to pick up where we left off last time. If you recall the last couple messages, I talked about two things. One, how God wants to do something new in New Albany. He wants to do a new thing, something big, something remarkable, something we've never seen before. And I want to encourage you to keep praying for that. And then last week, I talked about how the key to real change is, anyone remember? Purpose. Purpose, right? And the two levers that go into purpose, mission and vision. Mission being the work that God has given us to do and vision being our plan to get that job done. Now today and next time, that'll be in two weeks, I want to explore this idea of mission just a little bit further and maybe challenge your thinking. Are you ready for that? Amen. Well, let's pray and invite the Holy Spirit to be here with us just one more time. Father in heaven, we are here because you have called us to be here. And we want to be here. We want to worship you. And this morning, we also want to know better how we can serve you and fulfill the work that you've given us to do. Please, pour out your Holy Spirit, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. When we talk about mission, it's important to remember from last week again that our mission is given, it's not chosen. Right? It's given to us in the Word of God. It's the task that's been assigned to us. And so we have to prioritize clearly discerning what our mission is. We don't make it up. We don't choose it. We discern what our mission is. If the mission is not clear or we have a faulty conception of what our mission is, then it's going to be very difficult to fulfill that mission, right? Because we're aiming at the wrong thing. So having a clear grasp of our mission is vital, wouldn't you say? And yet I would like to propose this morning that to some extent, at least by and large, we have sort of missed the whole heart of the mission as a church. And in fact, I'm going to argue that what we need is a radical paradigm shift. What did I say? A radical paradigm shift. I like that word paradigm. You see, paradigms are important. They're powerful. They shape how you see things, how you view the world, how you interpret what is happening around you, the goals that you set, how you do things, the methodology that you use, the, how you measure success. Everything is determined. It's driven by the paradigm that's in our minds. And so if our paradigm is wrong, then it can lead to all kinds of problems in our ministry. Does that make sense? Back when I was in graduate school, I was studying uh, the History of Science, and I remember reading a very powerful book. It was called The Structure of Scientific Revolutions. I'm not going to talk about science this morning, just for a minute. It was written by a physicist. His name was Thomas Kuhn. Thomas Kuhn. It was an old book. It was written before I was born. But it just happens to be that it was that book that popularized the term paradigm or paradigm shift. It popularized that word in our culture. We all know the word now, but at that time, it was kind of a new idea. To summarize briefly what he wrote in the book, he said that scientific theories 
don't advance the way we normally think. Normally, we think of them as making little small incremental steps as we discover things. But he said, no, the way science advances is when there's a radical paradigm shift in the underlying model that we use to understand the world in some specific fields. Give you a quick example, a, a simple one. Take astronomy. If you were to go back well over 2,000 years, hundreds of years even before Jesus was alive on Earth, the Greeks had proposed that the earth was a sphere at the center of the universe, and everything that we see moving in the heavens, the stars, the sun, the moon, all of those things, they all are revolving around the earth, right? We call that geocentrism. And for hundreds of years, they took that model, that idea, and they tweaked and refined their equations and their formulas to where they got, by the time you're six or seven hundred years later, they got to the point where they could accurately predict where the moon was going to be, where the wandering stars, the planets, of course, that's what they called the wandering stars, where they were going to be, when you're going to have an eclipse. They could predict all of those things remarkably accurately. In fact, Ptolemy, when he wrote his book, The Almagest, and he kind of outlined, outlined uh, all the current understanding of astronomy, that book was so accurate that for the next thousand years, no one even questioned the model. Never even thought about changing it. It just worked. Until you get down to about the 1500s, and there was a man by the name, anyone know? Copernicus, amen. And Copernicus, what he did is he said, you know, why don't we just reconsider the whole model, the whole paradigm, and why don't we put the sun at the center, and we'll spin all the planets around the sun. Now, to be honest, his predictions were no more accurate than Ptolemy's. Use the same kind of, you know, information, the same kind of knowledge, but it was a change in paradigm, right? A change in the underlying model. And everything changed after that paradigm shift. I mean, 100 years later, less than that, you have Galileo. And then another 100 years, you have Isaac Newton. Another 100 years, you have Albert Einstein. Another 100 years, you have a man on the moon, actually standing on the moon. All of that followed because there was first a shift in their paradigm. Now, Thomas Kuhn, in his book, he argued that every scientific discipline, and he gave examples in medicine and electricity and chemistry or whatever, every scientific discipline, they all advanced when there was a paradigm shift. It's not little small incremental changes. Now, what I want to suggest today is that if we are serious about wanting to fulfill our mission, it's not going to take little small tweaks in our methodology. What we need is a whole new paradigm. Why do I say that? I hope you guys uh, are patient with me and understanding, because I don't want to offend anyone this morning. But let's talk about how we normally do evangelism. This is all over the country. We do it the same way, pretty much every church, right? church board will get together and they'll say, you know, we should do evangelism in our area. And so the plan is we will bring in an evangelist and we will hold a series of meetings, right? I mean, this is typical. You've done it. I've done it many times in my church. Let's say we wanted to reach New Albany and, and not just New Albany, but maybe the surrounding areas. And so we're going we're gonna to try and target 100,000 people with the gospel. Amen. So what do we do? How do we reach them? That's the first problem. How do we reach them? Well, we figure we can get their mailing address and we'll mail them a flyer. There's probably two people per home, so we got to mail out how many flyers? Probably 50,000 flyers if we want to reach 100,000 people, right? You follow it? Kind of just follow it? 
So we mail them out. You know, that's not cheap, by the way, let me tell you. But let's say we have the money and we do it and we mail them out. Now we have another problem. What happens to most of those flyers when they show up in their home? Just put it right in the round file, right? In fact, what percentage of people that receive a flyer are likely to turn up on opening night? Anyone know what the current statistics are approximately? It's about one per thousand. So if we mail out 50,000 flyers, which is a pretty good chunk of change, then how many people are likely to show up on opening night for your meetings? Well, about 50, right? One per thousand. Now, if you had 50 people, I'm not talking about members, but 50 people from the community come to your meetings, would you be excited about that? I'd be saying, praise God, that's amazing, that's wonderful. But now we got another problem. Because you know what happens as the meetings progress, what happens to that crowd? It starts dwindling down smaller and smaller. Maybe they hear something they don't like. Maybe they're getting some opposition from home. Maybe they just lose interest. Maybe, maybe their schedule changes or the conflict. And that number just gets smaller and smaller until by the time you get to the end, it's a pretty small group. And even some of those that make it through to the end, even they don't make a decision for Christ. Right? Have you seen that? Let me ask you a question. What would you guess is the percentage of people that show up on opening night that are going to end up getting baptized at the end? What percentage would you say? I have no idea what the numbers are, but I would say 20% is a pretty generous percentage, right? So we got 50 people, maybe 20% will get 10 people baptized at the end of the series. That sound fair? Would you be excited if we got 10 people? 10 new members, that would be wonderful. We should all be, the angels in heaven are going to be rejoicing. We should be too. But now we got another problem. You know what happens with people, especially when they come in through this form of evangelism, what happens down the road three, four months or a year down the road? What happens many times to these members? For whatever reason, they stop showing up. Maybe someone says something or whatever, or they just get discouraged or whatever. We know that many times these members do not stick it out even for a whole year. Now, across North America... Our retention rate is about 50% for all forms of evangelism combined. That means within one year, 50% of them are going to be gone. But I will tell you that with public evangelism, that percentage is much lower. I remember when I was just a young Christian, I went to a big evangelistic series that they hold in this major metropolitan area, and they actually baptized 100 people. It was an excellent meeting, excellent speaker. About a year later, I was in that same area, and I was just talking with someone. How many of those people are still attending this church? You know what he said? Not hardly anyone left. Maybe one or two. But let's say that out of those 10 people, we managed to keep 50% of them. Half of them survived the transition. They actually become regular active members in our church. Would you be excited about that? We should be excited, but we should also be sad about the five we lost. Amen? But you got five new members. Now we got another problem. Out of those five members, what percentage of them, percentage of them do you think are going to go on and become active, regular, consistent soul winners? I mean, just kind of think about the typical church. What percentage of the church members are regularly winning people to Christ? Like every year, every couple of years, a couple of people. What percentage would you say? You know, I heard a statistic one time that said 95% of our members never won one soul to Christ their whole life. 
That was kind of, I don't know how accurate that is, but that's what I've heard. And the number of people that are regularly winning souls to Christ, that number is far smaller. Amen? I remember another time I was just a young Christian. I wanted to learn how to win souls. I wanted to learn how to bring people to Christ. So I went up to my pastor, just this young 20-some-year-old guy, and I said, you know, pastor, is there anyone in the conference that is regularly winning people to Christ? Because I want to go to them, and I want to learn how they do it. And he kind of scratched his head. You know, I don't know of anyone in this whole conference that's regularly winning souls to Christ. I mean, the pastors, of course, maybe, but I don't know anyone, no, not a single layperson that's regularly winning people to Christ in this whole conference. So out of those five people, how many of them are likely to become real soul winners, real workers in your church? Chances are, statistics, none of them will ever win one person to Christ, and the chance of one of them becoming a regular soul winner is almost non-existent. Now, am I exaggerating these numbers? We have some significant problems if we just think about our current paradigm for evangelism. Look at it another way. How many people were we trying to reach at the beginning of this process? How many did we start with? 100,000 people, right? How many could we not get to come out and even hear one sermon? Well, we had 50 come out, so that means 99,950. We could not even get to listen to one sermon. Am I correct? That's 99.95% of our target group we completely were unable to reach. All we did is send them a flyer. How many were we unable to win to Christ? Well, we got 10, so that means we were not able to win 99,990. That's 99.99%. We could not win to Christ. How many were we unable to keep? Well, we only kept five. That means 99.995% of our target group we could not even keep in our church. How many were we unable to equip to become a worker? Basically 100%. Basically 100%. Look at it another way. Let's say we did this every single year. We coughed up the money. I mean, 50,000 flyers. You're talking about $50,000 probably, right? And we do that every single year, and we win five people every year. Would that be exciting? How long is it going to take to be able to reach 100,000 people if we win five people a year? We're talking 20,000 years. All the people we tried to reach at the beginning, they're all long dead and gone. And we're just getting started with a new batch of people. I'll tell you what. Let me tell you. The Lord's coming back in less than 20,000 years. Amen? Now, I'm all for public evangelism. Please do not misunderstand me. What I'm suggesting is that we need to rethink our paradigm. There's something wrong with our paradigm. It's not working the way we're doing it. When you look at the New Testament, you see something completely different, don't you? Turn with me very quickly to the book of Acts. We're just going to skim through a number of verses. I just want to give you kind of a high-level picture of what was happening in the book of Acts. And tell me if it sounds like what we see today or if it sounds like maybe something different was going on in New Testament times. Start with Acts chapter 2. What happens in Acts chapter 2? We have the story of the day of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit is poured out without, with power. Peter gets up, he preaches this powerful sermon, right? You remember the story. Skim on down to Acts 2 verse 41. 
He preaches a powerful sermon. They're convicted. They say, men and brethren, what must we do to be saved? Peter says, repent, be baptized, and so on. Verse 41, then they that gladly received his word were baptized. And the same day there were added unto them about what? 3,000 souls. Now, does that sound a little different than what we typically see today? Now, to be honest, this verse is not the most amazing verse in the book of Acts. Because if you think about the circumstances, 3,000 souls is not completely beyond the realm of possibility. I mean, they had seen Jesus perform miracles for three and a half years. Amen? When Jesus died on the cross, the sun went dark for three hours. And then there was a great earthquake, and dead people came up out of the graves and went into the city and started preaching. Isn't that what the Bible says? And now you have these disciples are standing up in the front of the people, and they're speaking in other languages they had never spoken before. If you saw those kind of things, if we had those kind of things happen today, maybe we would see 3,000 people get baptized in a day too. But if you continue reading the description of this early church, look at verse 47. This is the verse that really gets me. It describes these new believers that said they were praising God. They had favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church what? Daily such as should be saved. You know how many churches there are in North America that are baptizing people every single day of the year? I'm not, I'm not just talking about 365 people per year. I'm talking about every single day of the year people are coming to Christ. I don't know if there's any churches like that today. Yet this is what was happening in Jerusalem. Skip over to Acts chapter 4. Just quickly, we're just skimming a few verses. Acts chapter 4, verse 4. Now, the time period between Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4 is very short. It looks like a few weeks, maybe a few months at most. Look how rapidly the church had grown by the time you get to Acts chapter 4, verse 4. The Bible says, Howbeit many of them which heard the word believed, and the number of the what? Men was about how much? 5,000. How many did you have in Acts chapter 3? Or 2? 3,000. How many did you have in Acts chapter 4? 5,000, but they're 5,000 men. We're talking about 5,000 families, aren't we? What about the wives? What about the children? The number had grown from 3,000 souls to probably fifteen or 20,000 people in just a matter of a few months. Look at Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5, verse 28. Peter and John had been preaching. They got arrested, beaten, told not to preach anymore. They went right back out, started preaching again. Now they got arrested a second time. Maybe change the order of our sermons. Maybe we can change the results. Maybe if we experiment with the number of nights that we meet or the meeting times or how long we... I mean, if we just tweak all those little things, you think maybe we're going to get to New Testament results by tweaking our current paradigm. Now, we can just pray twice as hard and ask God to bless. But is it possible that there's something else going on here that we've missed, that we've overlooked, that explains why they were having success and we are struggling to have success? I've been studying this for a very long time, and I've come to the conclusion that there is a problem with our paradigm. It's unspoken, it's unconscious, it's not like one of our 28 fundamental beliefs, nothing like that. It's just a part of our culture as Seventh-day Adventists. We think about things a certain way, we have sort of a shared paradigm, and we don't even realize it. What is that paradigm? Well, simply put, here's kind of my interpretation, I may be wrong. Well, generally, when we encounter someone, we kind of put them on a spectrum, 
somewhere along this line where either they're in total error or they've come over to total truth. So if they're like an atheist, they're way over here. If they believe in God, but maybe they're not a Christian or something, then they're like, oh, then they become a Christian. Now they believe the Bible. And then eventually they start learning certain Bible truths. Like, oh, now they know about the law of God. Now they know the Sabbath. Now they stay the dead. If they keep learning, eventually they're going to learn all these like kind of arcane things like 1844 and SOP and all that. They're going to learn all these things. And eventually they're going to get all 28 points lined up. And then what do we say? Oh, now they're converted. kind of like a process of just acquiring information you get enough information then you end up being converted this is why we say things like oh when did you come into the truth I mean, there's nothing wrong with that statement but it's kind of just shows where our thinking is or pastors you know they're supposed to go clear someone for baptism what does that even mean oh check off all 28 points make sure they understand them properly that's important i'm not saying we shouldn't do that but see, it shows the paradigm that we have in our mind, and it shapes everything. Paradigms shape our methodology. They shape our goals. They shape how we measure success. They drive everything. Paradigms are important. If our paradigm is that conversion is primarily a process of acquiring information, then how are we going to do our ministry? Well, we're going to get as many people together in as big a room as we can. We'll get someone that talks as fast as possible to give them as much information. We meet as many nights as we can. Just pour out the information. And if they just hear the information, then they're going to be converted. Now, information is powerful, and it does produce conversion sometimes. But let me just suggest that there's a lot of people that have a lot of information, and they are not converted. If you look in the New Testament, I believe what you'll see is that they, their paradigm is that conversion is primarily a process of surrender. Of surrender. They start out as rebels and they gradually surrender as they learn more and implement more in their life until they're finally surrendered to God. And that's real conversion. Now, the first part of that process is, yeah, they're learning new truths and they're surrendering to new truths. Maybe they got new ideas they haven't encountered before and they have to surrender. That's not always easy. But is it just about surrendering to the truths of the Bible or is there more? You know, the Bible has a whole way of living our lives. It's about doing what God says. It's about obeying his commandments. There's a whole nother level of surrender. Someone can surrender to truth and not surrender to the will of God. Yeah, I know you're right, but I'm not going to do it. No, it's about living out the Word. And it's not just about living out the Word of God. God has a mission for His people. And sometimes they say, hey, I'm willing to live a Christian life, but don't ask me to share my faith. I'm not willing to surrender on that point. You understand what I'm saying? I mean, God wants to move us through the whole process of surrender till every part of our life is surrendered to God. That's true conversion. This is why we need to be converted, reconverted every day, because we're constantly learning new things and constantly surrendering new areas. It's a lifelong process. Amen? It took me about one year of study, basically, to learn our 28 fundamental. It didn't take that long. It's not that hard. But I've been trying to surrender every day of my life ever since, because I still struggle in being surrendered to God. You see the difference? It's a whole new way of thinking about things. If we embrace this model, this paradigm, I suspect it would change a lot of things about how we do ministry. 
Our methodology would not just focus on pouring out information, as helpful and valuable as that is, but we would focus on helping people grow in their spiritual lives, reaching full maturity. We wouldn't just stop when they get baptized. That would just be the beginning of a long journey of growing and increasing in surrender. We wouldn't measure success by how much knowledge we have, but by the spiritual maturity that we demonstrate in our lives. It's not about how much information we have, it's how much implementation there is in our life. You understand what I'm saying? We wouldn't primarily focus on counting how many baptisms we have, but we would focus on how many of our members are really growing in Christ. How many are having real devotions in the morning? How many are living lives of real victory? in their lives? How many are engaged in real ministry? How many workers are there? In our, we'd be asking different questions because we have a different paradigm. It changes our goals. It changes how we measure success. Whole bunch of new questions. I believe this is how the New Testament saw things. And in fact, it's implied directly in the Great Commission, something we've just missed. Matthew chapter 28, the last couple of verses. You know the passage. Go you therefore, and as some versions say, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. It's not just make converts, not just make proselytes, not just intellectually produce people that believe what we know. It's about making disciples, true followers of Jesus Christ. And there's two parts to it. Right? First part is we baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost. And the second part is we teach them to observe all things whatsoever I've commanded you. There's two parts to it. That's how you make disciples. The baptism, of course, is the part where we help unbelievers to become believers. That's evangelism. That's essential and necessary. But there's a whole other part. It's the teaching them to observe all things. That's the training where we help them to grow spiritually into Christian maturity. Amen? And by the way, it doesn't just say teach them to know all of our doctrine. It says teach them to observe or obey everything I've commanded you. It's the commandments of it. It's how to live the Christian life. Teaching people to do what Christ said. Teaching them how to grow in personal obedience. Teaching them how to live out Scripture practically. And by the way, one of the commands we need to teach is how to go out and make disciples. I mean, that's where multiplication comes in. It reproduces itself if we do it that way. The Great Commission is all about helping people grow up into full maturity. Paul said, we preach Christ, warning every man in all, in all wisdom, teaching every man in all wisdom, and we present every man perfect in Christ. That's the goal. We warn every man of the gospel, but then we teach them how to grow up into the fullness of Christ. This process is all through the New Testament. Even some of the most basic parables that we have read many times before. Do you remember that parable of the corn seed that he planted and he went home and slept? He didn't know how, but somehow the next morning it, it sprouted up. Remember that parable? That's in Mark chapter 4. It says, first the blade, then the ear, then the full corn in the ear. That's the process, right? The, when the seed first germinates, that's conversion. But eventually it grows up into maturity and you start to see the ear of corn form. You see the tassels, right? Any of you grown corn before? But you don't stop there. You go all the way to the next stage where full ear of corn, where corn has been reproduced inside the ear. Now you have lots of seed. Amen? I mean, that's the plan for God's plan for every believer. First the blade, then the ear, then the full corn in the ear. Reproduction. Or remember the parable of the sower? 
You have some seed went by the wayside. That seed never even germinated. It's not that, there's no conversion. That's the unbeliever, right? But some seed falls in the stony ground soil. And the seed germinates. They're converted. But what's the problem? There's no spiritual depth. They don't grow. And so when persecution arises, it withers away and they die. They fall off. But then some seed, I don't want to get too touchy here. But some seed falls among thorny ground and the plant grows up and it looks nice and mature. But because there's so many weeds, so much busyness in their life, there's no room for them to reproduce. And so they become unfruitful. The good seed, the good soil rather, is the seed that sprouts, grows, and reproduces. Some 30, some 60, some 100 fold. Good, seeds, good soil, excuse me, good soil always means spiritual multiplication. If there's no spiritual multiplication, we have a problem. We had time we could just trace this down through the whole New Testament. And we will study this more some other time you'll discover that there are at least four distinct stages of spiritual growth. I suppose they got this from the parable of the sower. Unbelievers, that's like the wayside seed. Natural man, that's our normal condition, the unconverted, believer, unconverted person. Spiritual babes, that's like the little blade that comes up. New Christian. And sometimes people that have been Christians for a long time and they just never grew. Spiritual babes. Bible also talks about disciples, strong, faithful, committed, dedicated, consistent. Praise God for these disciples. But they've never led another person to Christ. And then you have, of course, the workers, the laborers, the co-laborers. The Bible uses different phrases to describe this fourth stage. And that is where they're actively involved in leading other people to Christ. And there is spiritual multiplication taking place. It's all through the New Testament. To put it differently paradigm that we need is that conversion is not just about the transmission of information. It's about the transmission of the whole Christian experience, the whole Christian life. Teaching people how to observe everything that Christ taught us to do. How to pray. How to study. How to memorize. How to manage our time how to overcome temptation, how to witness, how to share our testimony, how to give a Bible study. And the list goes on and on. Our churches should be training centers where every member is equipped and fitted up with the skills that they need to become a worker. And if we fail to provide that training, then our members are unlikely to ever become soul winners. And so that's when we turn to public evangelism. Well, let's just throw some money at the problem. Let me illustrate this another way. Let's say that we had uh, everyone here in this room, and you're listening to me, and you're kind of going in one ear and out the other. But maybe one person, maybe uh, Jacob, right? What's your name, right? Yeah, maybe Jacob. He says, you know, he starts thinking about it a little bit more. He says, you know, I think actually Pastor Viss, I think he has a point. And for whatever reason, maybe no one has, this is just another sermon for the rest of you. Jacob, in his mind, something flips in his brain. There's a paradigm shift. He says, you know, I think he's right. I'm going to start changing how I do things in this church. And so he makes a commitment to finding at least one person 
that he can draw to Christ and share his faith. And not just share his faith and, and bring him to, to Christ, but he actually starts training and pouring out his life, teaching him everything he knows about the Christian life. And in the process, he's also pouring out a vision for the same paradigm, the same, same way of doing things to this other person. So they have the same way of thinking. Teaches them how to share his faith, how to, how to give a Bible study, how to lead someone else to Christ. And maybe he spends a whole year just investing in this one person. And by the way, he can still be involved helping out, teaching Sabbath school or involved in different programs or whatever, whatever he normally does. He can still do that. If we have a public meeting, he can still come out and support it. But whatever he does in his mind, he's saying, I have to reproduce. I have to find someone and train them to become a worker. Spends a whole year. Finally gets someone equipped and ready to go. By the end of one year, how many workers do we now have in this church? Well, we got two, right? We got Jacob and we have the person he trains. Now, the next year, the two of them both do the same thing. Right? You know where this is going. The two of them go and they find someone else. They bring them to Christ. They teach them. They train them. They help them to go until they're fully reproduced as workers. Now, how many workers do you have at the end of year two? Two have become four. And the next year, four become eight. I'm not talking about eight converts, eight new members. I'm talking about eight workers in your church. Would you be excited about that? How many would you have if he did that for 10 years? All he does is just find one person every year and just pour out his, that's all he does, just one person a year. And he keeps training, but every person he trains, they do the same thing. How many would you have at the end of 10 years? Well, let's count, right? Two the first year, four, eight, 16, 32, 64, 128, 256, 512, 1,024. You'd have 1,000 workers if all Jacob did was just train one person every year. If he just reproduced, and everyone that he trained, trained someone else. How'd you like to have a thousand new workers in your church? I guarantee you, we wouldn't be in this church anymore. We have to be somewhere bigger or have lots of churches or something. You can't fit a thousand people in here. Not a thousand people, a thousand workers. You understand the difference, what I'm saying? You know, this is God's plan for his people. Isaiah 60, 22 says, A little one shall become a thousand, a small one, a strong nation. I, the Lord, why he's in his time. I'm going to do it. I'm going to take my people. I'm going to multiply them. I'm going to make one small one. A, a thousand, a strong nation. I'm going to do it. That's my plan. What if those thousand workers continue to do the same thing for the next 10 years? Each of those thousand became another thousand. Now we're talking 20 years down the road from today. How many would we have? Got any mathematicians? Right? A thousand times a thousand. What is that? It's a million. How would you like a million workers? We're not talking about New Albany. We're talking about finishing the work. The whole state of Indiana, we're going to get it done. Amen? What if those million workers did the same thing for another 10 years? Now we're talking 30 years down the road. What's a million times a thousand? It's a billion. We're not talking about Indiana. We're not talking about the United States. We're talking about reaching the entire world, finishing the work around the globe. In 30 years, we'd be done. One person. Paradigm switches. There's a little flip that goes on in his brain. He says, you know, I'm going to do things a little different. It's the power of paradigm. This makes sense? Yes, no, maybe. This is God's plan. Jeremiah 33, 22. 
As the host of heaven cannot be numbered, neither the sand or the sea measured, so will I multiply the seed of David, my servants, and the Levites that minister unto me. I'm going to multiply my people like the stars of heaven. I'm going to multiply them like the sand of the sea. That's what I'm going to do for my people. It can go a lot faster than 30 years, believe me. It doesn't necessarily have to take a whole year to train someone to become a worker. We can certainly train more than one person at a time, can't we? I mean, think about what we have with technology today. I mean, come on. We don't have to start with just one person. We can start with 100 people in here, or however many there are. We can jumpstart that process quite a bit. And the more we put our hearts into this, the more we study how to do this, the more we learn how to equip people with skills and tools and practical, practical information so they can really have the experience we're supposed to have the more we learn how to do that, the faster it's going to go. We are experts at public evangelism. We have that down to a science. But we are babes when it comes to training our members to become true workers for God. And it doesn't mean we have to stop doing evangelism. On the contrary, we would be doing a lot more evangelism if we chose this paradigm, wouldn't we? I mean, if I had 100 workers in this church and they are all out giving Bible studies and reaching out to the friends and making, building relationships, would I do more or less evangelism? What do you think? We'd be doing it back-to-back -back evangelism because all the workers would be bringing the people that they're studying with and we'd be baptizing people left and right. We're going to be doing more evangelism, not less. We don't throw away the tools that we're using. We're changing the paradigm, not the tools. When they went from geocentrism to heliocentrism, they didn't get rid of all their telescopes. They still use the telescopes, they still use mathematics, they still use the same kind of formulas, but they had a different paradigm and it led to different results. You understand what I'm saying? By the way, the evangelism is going to work a whole lot better too because if someone does come to Christ, there's going to be someone right by their side to nurture them and equip them and train them and not just help them to kind of survive and follow through, but it's going to eventually equip them to become a worker too and invite their friends. Does this make sense? Let me close with one final passage very quickly. It's our scripture reading, actually. Acts chapter 19. Just want to give you an idea of what could happen, how powerful this paradigm could be. Acts chapter 19. This is like a little snapshot of Paul's life. Kind of get a, a window going back in time to see how Paul actually did things in his ministry. In this particular passage, he's going up to the city of Ephesus, fourth largest city in the Roman Empire, important city. And he goes into the city, and the very first thing we see him doing in verse 8, Acts chapter 19, verse 8, this is typically what Paul did. He went into the synagogue and spoke boldly for the space of how long? Three months, disputing and persuading the things concerning the kingdom of God. In other words, he, he went to the place where there were already some people that had some knowledge of the Scriptures, and he started preaching like crazy to them. For three months, disputing, persuading the things concerning the kingdom of God. What would we call that today? That sounds like evangelism to me, amen? We're not doing away with evangelism. He did evangelism. That's how he, how he started his ministry. When he went into a new area, the first thing he typically did was he'd go into the synagogue and he'd hold an evangelistic series. And some people accepted the message, and some people rejected it, just like always, right? In fact, look at the next verse. 
But when diverse were hardened, or some of them were hardened and believed not, and began to speak evil of that way before the multitudes, Paul went on to the next city and did another evangelistic series. Is that what it says? Is that what it says? What did he do? He took the believers and he moved them to another location out of the synagogue and he began to meet with them in the school of Tyrannus. And he's teaching them there how often? Daily. Daily in the school of Tyrannus. He's meeting with these believers. He's providing the training, the teaching, helping them to grow, helping them to reach full maturity as Christians. He doesn't just leave them as new believers, but he stays long enough to see them come to maturity. So we got three months of evangelism, but how much time did he spend in training? Well, look at verse 10. This continued by the space of what? Two years. So where was Paul for the next two years after this evangelistic series? Right there in the school of Tyrannus. How often? Every single day. He was there teaching, teaching, teaching. And what were the results? Three months of evangelism. 24 months of training. The Bible says the results... All they which dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. When it says all of Asia, it's talking about Asia Minor, which is approximately the nation of Turkey today. You know, all those cities in Revelation, you know, the seven churches, all of them were in Asia Minor. It says in two years, everyone in the whole region heard the word of the Lord Jesus. They all, they finished the work in the entire area. Every one of those cities, they heard the gospel in two years. And let me ask you this. Was it Paul that was preaching in Laodicea and Smyrna and Thyatira and Tyre? Was Paul preaching in all those cities? Where was Paul? He was at the school of Tyrannus training the believers there. So who reached all the other cities? It was the people he trained. It was the people he trained. Friends, we have to have our paradigm right if we're going to finish the work. Amen? Ephesus was a special city. It was an important city. They had strong leaders there. They were serious. They were committed. You can read more about that city and the way God worked mightily. God was working there. The Holy Spirit was poured out there in Ephesus. No doubt about it. But you know something? I believe New Albany is a special city. It's an important city in God's plan. There are strong leaders here in New Albany. Amen? you got some great elders. And they're, we're serious. I mean, the church here is serious. They're committed. We're not fooling around here, are we? Are we? Is God working here in this church? Does God have a plan for New Albany? Do you think God is willing to pour out the Holy Spirit here in our congregation? What do you think? There's no reason that God can't do the same thing here in New Albany that he did in Ephesus 2,000 years ago. I have no doubt about that. But we have to have a paradigm shift if we're going to see those kind of results. If we make that shift together as a church family, we will be able to figure out how to do it. And God will bless us. We just have to step out in faith. Now, you know I like to always end with a short appeal. I'm not going to drag this out. But as you think about what we've been talking about, if you can see the value in 
viewing conversion not just as a process of acquiring information. That's part of it. That's important. I'm not minimizing our message. Don't misunderstand me. But if you can see the value of not just seeing conversion as about acquiring information, you see it as growing in personal surrender to God, right? Can you see, you see the difference? If you see conversion as becoming more and more surrendered to God every day, and you want that experience yourself, can I see your hand? I want to be more surrendered to God. That's true conversion. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we cannot help but think time is running out. We don't have another generation to take the gospel to New Albany or Indiana or the United States or this world. The time is now. And I believe that you are wanting to flip the switches in our minds that make paradigm shifts in our thinking so that we can get the job done. You saw every hand went up just about, Lord. You know we want to be fully surrendered to you. Please make that happen, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.